Hello and welcome to the Adventure Podcast. This podcast is about helping listeners learn from and meditate on our sermons from anywhere at any time. Thanks for joining and let's get started. So, there aren't too many more uh, sensitive topics to talk about than slavery or homosexuality um, or women, which is why I let Tony deal with the other two. Today, we're going to... We're, we're going to talk about the slavery one, uh, which is a struggle. Yeah, like all the questions that we have, we've kind of walked our way through over the last few weeks, we're going to hit this head on, but I'm going to warn you up front, there's still going to be a lot of stuff on the table to talk about. There's no way that we can just cover the, the whole of this really well in the amount of time that we've got here. So... Uh, the, the word condone started out as a term that meant to forgive or pardon. Um, Like much of English language, that word has changed a little bit over time, and so today uh, it's involved in modern English into the idea that something is bad, is acceptable, forgivable, or harmless. And so this popular question that, that we're talking about today suggests that the Bible at worst justifies slavery, but at least passes it off without any condemnation. And since this charge is leveled at Scripture, I, I want to start there with you and kind of take it from that direction. So one of the cores of the church is that Scripture or the Bible is inerrant. All right, what does that mean that it's inerrant? Well, it means a couple of things. One, it means that it can't contradict itself. So that means if it says one thing in one spot and in another there appears to be something that contradicts that one, then it means we've got to dig in a little bit deeper and try to figure out how those two things can exist together. We also believe that it's cumulative, all right? That means it adds on top of each other, and that means that everything works together. So what does that mean? It means you can't pick and choose and go, well, I like this verse over in this passage, but I, I, th- this one doesn't really make my case quite so well, so I'm just going to ignore that verse over here. Like, they have, to ex- they have to exist together. Everything has to add up. And this is important for us today uh, because it's really easy to manipulate the Bible into saying what you want it to say without these two principles in play. The second belief that's really important for our discussion is that God imparts inherent value into all human beings. Now, Tony talked about this last week. He mentioned it then. And it's something so basic that I think sometimes we almost assume it in our discussions But it's critical we keep that at the forefront of what we believe. And I just tell you in scripture, this foundational truth is repeated and reaffirmed over and over and over again. It's the basis for all the Old Testament law that's laid out in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And while we haven't always lived this out super well as the church or as Christians, it's a foundational concept within both Judaism as well as Christianity third thing that's important for us is that kidnapping and the trade of kidnapped individuals is expressly prohibited in scripture all right that's really important to our conversation for today when you and i think of slavery we usually think in the in the context of kind of uh the 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 antebellum chattel slavery of the american south right In that period of history, both Europeans and Americans misused and corrupted scripture to justify 
justify slavery. Now, they used scripture, but scripture does not support their claim. The justifications for slavery started with European colonial pride and was bolstered by the science of the time eugenics, which we talked about several weeks ago. And that has turned into what is popularly known today as scientific racism. See, what people did is they took that starting point and then they tried to make scripture fit their starting point. So scripture was corrupted to conform to that racial prejudice and bad scientific starting point. So what does the Bible say about slavery? Well, here's two passages from the Old Testament that specifically reject slavery in the way that we tend to think about it, all right? Look at Exodus 21, 16. It says, kidnappers must be put to death, whether they're caught in possession of their victims or they've already sold them as slaves. There's not a lot of wiggle room in that, is there? That, it pretty much is what it is. Deuteronomy 24, 7. If anybody kidnaps a fellow Israelite and treats him as a slave or sells him, the kidnapper must die, and this way you will purge the what? The evil from among you. This is evil, and God says that it's evil. Understand, that leaves no room for the black African kidnappers who sold slaves or the white traders and owners who bought them. There is no room for that in Scripture anywhere. Scripturally, this is something God abhors, and he places this out of bounds of God's people. Any other scriptures that people may bring up about slavery, they have to exist within that context. That's why it's so important to have those first two rules, right? That it's cumulative, right? And, and that we're always, we're always looking at the whole lens of scripture. Somebody brings up and says, well, it uses the word slavery over here. It, okay, we'll deal with that in just a second, but understand, God says you can't, have slaves that look like this. Fair? Okay. So let's talk about this other part that's kind of hard to talk about, but it's a reality. And that is, is that indentured servitude was allowed as a last resort with boundaries in the Old Testament. Again, we focus so much on antebellum shadow slavery in our country it's formed a lens through which we understand any, uh, any mention of slavery. Somebody's going to ask what shadow slavery is. It's, it's when you own people. Um, it, it's that idea. It's, it's like roots, all right? So that's kind of that, that lens that we see all of the word slavery through. Without excusing anything, that lens can be a bit troublesome when we start looking back in history and we start examining cultures from history. Not all slavery looked like roots. Not all of it looked like the, the, the African slavery in the south of the United States or in the Caribbean. You know, when our English Bibles use the word slave in the Old Testament, just about every time it's a translation of the Hebrew word abed, which in English is better understood as bondservant. Now, that begs the question, what's a bondservant? A bondservant is somebody who, because of economic or other challenges, um, voluntarily takes on the role of being an indentured servant. Now, I'm not suggesting that every slave or servant in the ancient world or ancient Israel were happy about that role or that every master treated them super well. I'm not trying to make that assertion. What I am suggesting is that because of the broken world that they existed in, God provided a final safety net for people who through either misfortune or poor choices ended up in a position where they couldn't provide for their family or themselves. 
Again, this was not God's desire, all right? God actually codifies a number of practical ways for the poor to be taken care of so they wouldn't end up trading off their autonomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, 24 is just one place that lays out a whole bunch of lists of different ways that God laid in protections for people in the Old Testament. So in, in Deuteronomy 24, he talks about that a piece of equipment, so think of like a plow or a loom, some piece of equipment that was used in the survival of a family, you couldn't use that as a pledge for a loan, right? So when you go to a bank and they say, well, what do you have, what do you have to put against this, right? What are you actually worth? Well, in that time period, they would go, what do you have to put against it? Well, I can put my plow against it, or I can put my, my loom against it, or I can put this thing that's really, really important, right, to my family. I'll put that up as, as kind of my guarantee of the loan. Scripture says you're not allowed to do that. Israelites are not allowed to accept that. If a poor man gives his cloak in a pledge, so another one, that's another one, their outside cloak, you go, all right, look, I promise to pay this loan back here. I'll give you my outside cloak. Well, that may be the only thing that keeps them warm. And so scripture actually says it had to be returned at night. So every day they would have to go back and forth, which would make me not want to lend money. A widow's cloak couldn't be taken in pledge at all. All right, that wasn't allowed, period. A poor hired man had to receive his wages daily. So you couldn't be a rich landowner and go, well, you know what, I'll pay you at the end of the week. Or I'll pay you at the end of harvest. Why? Because somebody who's poor is living day to day. So you had to give them their wage every single day. God put these things in place to protect them. When harvesting wheat or olives or grapes, um, you had to leave some of, the, some of the field for the poor to come in and harvest. If you read through the book of Ruth, you see that kind of played out in action, right? Further, every seven years, a reset occurred of loans and collateral securities. Beyond that, every 50 years, uh, it was called the year of Jubilee. And among other things, all land mortgages reverted back to their original owners and some conscripted labor went free. So if you sold your land out of a foolish decision or out of desperation, your kids would get it back so generational poverty could be thwarted. These are all the things that God's puts in play. Look at Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 through 2, and then verse 4. At the end of every seventh year, you must cancel, all the, cancel the debts of everyone who owes you money. So by the way, they didn't do a mortgage for 30 years. How long did their mortgages last? Seven, right? Because otherwise they knew they had to give it back says everybody must cancel the loans they made to their fellow Israelites. They must not demand payment from their neighbors or relatives for the Lord's time of release has arrived. There should be no poor among you for the Lord your God will greatly bless you in the land he's giving you as a special, special possession. Now go back to verse four right there and circle should be. That's the intention. There should be no poor among you, but God also knew no matter how many protections you put into play, there's going to be some people who fall through the cracks. Sometimes circumstances were such that the laws requiring care for the poor just weren't enough. Man, in the ancient agrarian societies, it was often extremely difficult to provide for oneself and one's family. A lot of slaves in the Old Testament had sold themselves to prevent starvation. So God, knowing the broken world that we live in, the broken families that some of us are born into, right, and people's own broken decisions, creates this final safety net. Now, is it pleasant? 
No. This is not the ideal that, that, that God wanted for them, but God in his wisdom still created a pressure release valve for generational poverty, and it kept the culture from falling into something akin to the caste system we see in so many ancient societies. Again, God laid out a number of ways in which they were to be treated. They were still supposed to be protected even if they fell into that. Why? Because there was inherent value that God had placed into every human being. And he wanted everybody, no matter what their place was in life, to recognize that inherent value. And so a lot of the people even who were in this position were educated, they were trusted, some owned property, uh, some had businesses and they, they had families. Some even found the arrangement to be something they preferred. Uh, there was a way prescribed in Old Testament law if you decided you wanted to stay in that for the rest of your life. You go, you know what? This is a better life. I, actually, I like this. This fits me well. Now, <laughs> with that said, I've read some Christian authors who try to, try to portray this as all happy and cheery to try to soften it. Look, I think there were some people for whom this worked out real well. And I think there's some other people who were absolutely miserable and it was not a positive experience. I'm sure of that. I'm sure there were some cruel Israelite masters. I'm positive there were some Israelite and, and foreign servants who hated their position and who felt trapped and repressed. I just know people. Therefore, I know the brokenness in people. There's, there are people where this was not good. Scripture even starkly records one of those, and it's one of the heroes of Scripture. Do you remember Sarah's mistreatment of her handmaiden, Hagar? God sees that, and he records that mistreatment for all of biblical history. So I'm sure sometimes it wasn't pleasant. A lot of these things are uncomfortable for us. Man, it's uncomfortable for us to hear that there's an allowance in ancient culture to sell off daughters to be married. Some of you are like, oh. just kidding, just kidding. It's a joke, totally a joke. It's bad, it's wrong, don't do it. It's hard to read that when the Israelites made war against a foreign city, they could offer a peace deal that involved the people of that city giving up their autonomy. It's hard to read that some foreign-born servants could be passed on to subsequent generations. And scripture being written in the context of its day uses the word property to describe people. That is hard. It's hard to accept. And I'm going to give you an answer to that that isn't going to be very satisfying for some of you. God created a system working around a broken creation and a broken culture. And that's part of what we find laid out there. We want God to create a perfect system that is wholly just and grace-filled. That's coming. That's what the last book in the Bible is all about. Until then, God has chosen to work in a broken world with and through broken people who he knows could not and would not fully follow him, which includes me and you because we still make mistakes, right? Even when we know we should do differently. Tony, have had some, Tony and I have had some long talks during our trips back and forth to India and Nepal about some of the things that, that we've seen and heard there. You know, I, I generally don't like the way that we use the word privilege today, but it is very easy for us to sit in the U.S. in our privilege, judging cultures and history and talking about the way things should be. 
You know, much of the world today is a far harsher place than any of us have actually experienced in our life. And most people through history experienced a world much harsher than that. I've met adults in India who were sold by their parents into indentured servitude as children, much like we see in biblical Israel. That is still going on right now, today. And you see that, and I've had conversations with some of those people who were sold into slavery like that. And you ask the question, how could parents ever do that, right? It's so hard to wrap your head around. It's a question I've asked a few of them. Admittedly, some of it happens from broken, evil, uncaring parents. Man, those aren't the majority. Majority of the parents don't want to do that. It breaks their heart. Do you know why a lot of those kids in indentured servitude in India are sold off to work on farms and serving in trades? Here's the logic. Let me show you a couple of pictures here. So take a family who is literally so poor that they're starving to death which, by the way, absolutely happens. That is happening right now in India. Now, imagine being parents watching three, four, five, six children starving to death in your tiny living space in a makeshift tent. These are pictures that I took on one of our trips. It just built out of street debris and tarps. Go on to the other one. Out in a rural area, you might see something like this, and these are actually tents that were given maybe by the UN, maybe by some other aid. But this is their living space. And there's no way for you to try to to, to provide for them or save them. And there's no government systems in place to save you. Let me just ask the question, what do you do? What do you do? Now imagine there's a farmer or there's a brick maker, there's a factory owner who offers to buy your child for 250 kilo bags of rice. 220 pounds of rice that are going to feed your kids for the next six months. It'll feed the whole rest of the family for six months give you some breathing room, give you six months to figure out what's next. On top of that, you know, even if he isn't a good master, because he values your kids simply for the work the kid is going to provide, he's going to clothe them, he's going to feed them, he's going to house them. It's not going to be pleasant, but they're going to survive because they value their work. What do you do? What do you do? That's an impossible place to be, isn't it? It's so hard for us to put our, we got so many safety nets. It it is, our brains explode. We can't imagine it. And it isn't a pretty picture. And we want to scream, it shouldn't happen, right? And we want to scream, man, somebody, some NGO, some government should step in and make sure that doesn't happen. And we want to scream, where's their neighbors? And where's their friends? And surely somebody can provide for them. And this doesn't have to happen. It's what we want. Again, I don't like the way we use the word privilege in our culture today, but I think it fits here, and that's why we can't imagine it. We think that way because we've grown up in a nation with rich harvests, with a government that's stable and wealthy and has some level of conscience. And rarely in the last 80 years since the Great Depression have we experienced literally whole areas of the country in drought and depression where everybody's in the same boat. We haven't experienced that. And we've, we've actually kind of forgotten it out of our, our cultural history. First time Mark and Tony and I went, almost the entire nation was in drought. 
farmers were committing suicide because they couldn't handle watching their families starve and they were taking out loans they absolutely could never pay back. Uh, I'll never forget, I, I wish I'd put the, the picture of us sitting in there, Mark and Tony and I were sitting in this, this little... Uh, <laughs> this little village house with all the farmers gathered in and they were grilling Mark on how to, how to farm without water, which is a very hard thing, I gather. It's impossible. And it was heartbreaking. Look, I'm not asking you to like what we find in ancient scripture. I'm also not asking you to like some of what we find in the New Testament. Why didn't Jesus just straight up abolish slavery? Why did Paul and Peter tell people in slavery and in persecution not to revolt? Why did Paul tell Onesimus to go back to Philemon? And why in the world did he not throw Philemon out of the church for owning Onesimus? Why? I'll just tell you, there's no easy answers to this. We don't like complicated answers. We like simple answers that feel good. They're not here. We talk about how Christianity was under scrutiny as a mutinous sect of, of Judaism at the time. The results of totally turning Roman culture on its end probably would have resulted in Christianity being stomped out by the Romans. We could talk about a number of other issues that fall into play. None of them will feel good, though. And none of them will feel like enough. Instead, let's talk about two realities of how history has played out in regard to Scripture and Christianity and slavery and how those have worked. The effects of slavery, a scripture on slavery in the world, one of the things we find is that slaves have been drawn to Christianity since its very beginning. Let's go back to the first century for just a minute. Guess who were many of the very first converts to Christianity? So anthropologists continue to argue about uh, how large the slave population in Italy actually was during the first century. Uh, the estimates range anywhere from 20 to 40 percent, which just to put that into context, at the height of the southern, uh, the southern slaveholders in the United States, they, they figure that was around 30 percent. While some Roman slaves were akin to the Old Testament situations we talked about, the majority of slaves were owned. They were shadow slaves with little to no protection from abuse. And it wasn't racial, I'll be honest, most of the, the slavery we see in the ancient world, regardless of culture, um, it really wasn't racially driven because everybody was some version of brown. I, it, wasn't, it wasn't a racial thing. But slaves were drawn to Christianity in the first century. And if you go back and you read some of, of the writings, we don't have to guess why they were drawn to Scripture. Here's some of the things they tell us they found in Scripture. They found, first and foremost, worth. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It says, some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, but we've all been baptized in a one body by one spirit. We all share the same spirit. So they look at this and they go, oh, in God, we're all equal. Suddenly that means we're not lesser, right? Galatians 3:28. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. You're all what? One in Christ Jesus. They found a level of equality in the church that didn't exist elsewhere. Look at Ephesians 6, 9. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. They found a purpose regardless of their current situation. Look at Colossians 3, 22 through 24. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Again, hard to hear, right? 
Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you're working for the Lord rather than people. Remember, the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you're serving is actually Christ. We also find that they were encouraged to freedom in this life and they were promised it in the next and that really meant something to them. 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 22. Paul writes, he says, are you a slave? Don't let that worry you, but if you get a chance to be free, take it. So in other words, hey, we encourage that. And remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you're now free in the Lord. In our own history, why did enslaved Africans embrace the religion of their captors who, again, some of them unjustifiably used scripture to try to justify that brutal transatlantic slave trade? Emerson Powery and uh, Rodley Sadler Jr., uh, two authors who wrote the book Genesis of Liberation, they wrote this. They said, the African-American's respect for the authority of the Christian scriptures is a miracle in itself. They go on, they write, what they found is they fell in love with the God of Scripture. In Christ, they found salvation from their sins and reconciliation. In these texts, they found not just an otherworldly God offering spiritual blessings, but a here and now God who cared principally for the oppressed, acting historically and eschatologically to deliver the downtrodden from their abusers. They also found Jesus a suffering Savior, whose life and struggles paralleled their own struggles. The first predominantly black denominations in the U.S., they were founded on the, found in the late 18th century, some of which were by freed slaves. Today, about three-quarters, 74% of black Americans believe in God as described in the Bible, which is way higher than the national average. Instead of finding scripture to condone slavery, throughout history, what you're going to find is that the oppressed and enslaved have found peace and hope in scripture instead. But that's not all the people have found in scripture. Again, yes, some people claiming the title of Christian supported slavery, but the documented history of the church as a whole has been to work against it throughout time. See, the rejection of slavery came about because of Christians who care about God's word and his work. Paul does send Onesimus back to Philemon. He also calls the slave trade sinful and ungodly when he writes in 1 Timothy 1.10. Yet understand, early Christians were a tiny minority caught up in waves of persecution during the first few hundred years of the church's existence. With that said, it is a well-accepted fact. Doesn't matter whether you're a theologian or whether you're a historian. Historians, by and large, accept the fact that Christianity fundamentally changed the Roman world. That's interesting, right? This tiny group of people changed Rome. Instead of accepting the inferiority of some versus others, Christians taught equality in Christ and inherent worth from a loving creator. Instead of taking kids from the rubbish piles outside of Rome and selling those, those infants into slavery, which that was kind of the normal practice, um, infants were very often abandoned out basically at the dump and left to die of exposure, and slave traders would go out and get those infants and raise them up to four or five years old where you could sell them off. That was the norm. Christians went out to those same places and found those infants and took them home and adopted them into their own families and made them one of them. 
Instead of allowing brothers and sisters in need to be taken to the slave auctions out of poverty, Christians, many of whom themselves were poor, set aside money each week and and sent it in benevolence to help them out so that they wouldn't end up in that situation. Christianity recognized marriage among slaves. Freeing slaves was regarded as an act of charity in the church. When slaves were buried in Christian graves, very often there was no mention of slavery at all, of that that, that place that they occupied within kind of the social hierarchy. That wasn't mentioned on their gravestones. Why? Because they didn't see that as defining them. They were God's child. In later years, Christians went to great lengths to to free slaves. Some would actually sell themselves into slavery to raise money to buy other people off the the very same stage. Chattel slavery died out in Rome because of the influence of the church. Christians didn't use rebellion or violence to bring about that change. Slavery came to an end for centuries in those regions because scripture and the church taught and lived out a different way to interact with and value people. Now, don't get me wrong, injustices still remained, but slavery and the way that you and I think about it in Rome and Christian Europe was actually stamped out for centuries. And when slavery reappeared... The abolitionist movements in Europe and and in America, guess who they were founded and led by? Believers, Christians who cared about scripture. We could take a whole hour just on the history of that movement. The church is still doing that today. I told you earlier about some people that Tony and I and Mark have met in India. You know, some of the pastors that we support um, were children sold into slavery that were bought back by local churches and believers. Some of that are carrying, some of them are carrying that on today and they're buying children back out. Can you throw up that other picture of the kids? This is another one that I took and I blacked out their faces. It was several years ago, but I felt like it was still the right thing to do just to, to protect the kids there. Um, these are kids that we got to hang out with in an area of India that I'm not going to say publicly because we're online. These are kids, so there's a, in this region of India, there is a city where there is, it is miles, um, it is miles from one side to the other. It is a huge area, it's walled off in the city, and it is all sex workers, it is all slave trade. And these are the kids who are coming out of that sex slave trade. And we've got, part of what we're doing in the mission in India is we're buying some of those kids back out and they're, they're loving on them and they're putting them into Christian orphanages and into Christian families there in India and they're trying to get as many out as possible. We're still doing that work today and it's still going on whether you know about it or not. The great changes that have been made in the world today haven't come because of laws. Some of you are going to struggle with that. Laws do not change people's hearts. Laws may force things, but they don't change people's hearts. It's the least likely way to affect actual real change, generation to generation. How has change occurred? It's occurred through people, often Christians, showing the world a better way to live and to love. So what does scripture have to say to us today specifically about this subject matter? Well, first and foremost, I would just encourage you, scripture promises that in Christ, you and I are given a new way to see the world. Interestingly, one of the same passages a lot of people claim supports the idea of of slavery in scripture is one of the stories that slaves throughout history have found hope in. 
In Genesis, we find Abraham, the, the, the guy that God has chosen to be the father of his people, right? He's got a wife who has a handmaiden. Her name is Hagar. She's an Egyptian bondservant. And against God's instruction, Sarah gets impatient to have a child. And, and this is kind of a custom of the day. It sounds really weird to us. But they would actually take a, a, they would take a handmaiden. They would take a bondservant. They would, they would get pregnant from the, from the husband. And then when they had the child, the child would be considered hers. She would have that child and it would be her child in theory. It's a long story. But Hagar gets pregnant. Uh, she has the child. And as you can probably get in your head, some rivalry starts to erupt between, between Hagar and Sarah, and Sarah starts mistreating her. Hagar ends up taking her son Ishmael and literally fleeing out into the desert. She decides it'd be better for them both to die of exposure than to stay being mistreated by Sarah. God meets her there, and they have an interaction and this verse has been one that slaves throughout history have found comfort in. They've written about it. That's how we know that. Look at Genesis 16, 13. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. Not just you are the God who knows I exist. Not just you are the God that is out there. But you're the God who knows me. You see me and you know me and you care about me. He saw the value in her. He took care of her. I don't know about you, but I don't always value the way that, the way God values people. I struggle with that sometimes. It has nothing to do with skin color. Uh, but it, it's just that I sometimes allow my own experiences and my own cynicism to turn into prejudice. And I would tell you, there's a lot more prejudice in the world than just racial prejudice. There's economic prejudice. There's educational prejudice. There's regional prejudice. The, the list is as long as humans are inventive in the ways that we dismiss people and the value that God imparts in them. Like, we are real creative when it gets to that. I don't always see what God sees. Neither do you. That's why people of Walmart is such a popular thread. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 through 13. Now we see things imperfectly like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we'll see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God knows me completely. Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. You know what the answer is to prejudice? It's not laws. The answer to prejudice in the world is for me to see through God's eyes, see that inherent value he's put into people, and then live out that love. The world's been changed over the last 2,000 years, and as much as it's still broken, God has changed the common morality of much of the earth. And I'm telling you, if you look through history, you will find much of that change has come because of Scripture and because of the church. Sometimes in its largest forms, but often and most effectively, it's through individuals. We grow, we allow him to change us, and then we share his love and the way he sees things and the way he wants things with the people around us. I'm just gonna, this is a hard, sensitive, and challenging topic. But I wanna encourage you with this as we close out. God has never stopped loving or caring for each and every human being that he has ever created, which is all of them. 
And part of our responsibility and purpose is to share that in any possible way that he gives us the opportunity. Let's focus more on that than anything else. And in doing so, I believe God will bring healing and God will bring change. And that's the real answer that we need. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for, again, just creating us with value, for loving us the way that you do. And you prove that love by sending Jesus, who accepted persecution that he didn't deserve and accepted a a penalty that he didn't earn was ours and that is how much that you loved us even in our rebellion scripture tells us that you loved us first father I, I simply pray that regardless of what we see out of people and what we see in people that you change our perceptions of your creation help us to see people the way you do and in, in doing so father I pray that you'll put a burden on us that as we see people First and foremost, we just won't be so busy that we just don't pay attention to them. But Father, most of all, that we actually care enough about them to put love into action. In whatever way, shape, or form, there's an opportunity for that to happen. I pray that every believer who's a part of Adventure, every believer who's watching online, every believer um, in the world, myself foremost included, Father, that we would care enough to act differently. We would share your love, be your hands and your feet. Father, the words that we speak, they would be encouraging and they would impart that value. Father, help us to love. Again, we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.